Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This podcast is sponsored by Texture, the smartphone app that brings the best magazines on the newsstands right to your pocket. Now, Texture is offering listeners a free trial when you go to texture.com slash happened. This podcast contains explicit language. So that happened. This week, Zephyr Teachout wants in. The Fordham Law professor who made a surprisingly strong showing in her upset bid to unseat New York Governor Andrew Cuomo has set her sights on New York's 19th District's House seat. And she's also setting her sights on Washington, aiming to apply her work fighting corruption to one of Washington's most broken institutions. She joins us today to tell us how she'll get there. Meanwhile, Reed Ribble wants out. This week, the reform-minded Wisconsin Republican announced that he'd be retiring from the House at the end of the year. We'll chat him up about the 2016 scene, his plans for this last year in Congress, and what he hopes life after government is like. And next, Connecticut Senator Chris Murphy joins us in studio to talk about reforming the U.S. relationship with the brutal and warlike regime in Saudi Arabia. Finally, the presidential race has finished its sojourn in Iowa, and the movable feast now moves on to New Hampshire. We'll discuss everything we learned about voters and numbers and how it can affect what's happening next. I'm Jason Lincolns with Huffington Post reporters Zach Carter, Arthur Delaney, Jessica Schulberg, Janie Valencia, and Lauren Weber. We'll also have a full recap on the most recent Democratic debate. In fact, that's what's happening first. Hello and welcome back, America, to another edition of So That Happened, your podcast about political stuff that happened. And I'm joined today by Lauren Weber. Thanks for having me. And Arthur Delaney. Hi. And we're going to kick things off right now because we get to talk about a Democratic debate for once. They've been having these things on the weekend. This was prime time. Yeah, this is prime time, Jason. Weekday prime time. We I mean, can actually what? talk about Before it on the podcast. Before a pod- primary? Yeah. It, it, what? What a concept, right? Right? An excellent what? debate. It was a good product. It was a pretty good product. I felt like maybe there were too many process questions, but we'll get into that yeah. in a second. But I want to just start by saying by by um here here's the here's the prelude to this. Uh the the um the contest between Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton has of late uh kind of drifted into an argument over who has the best bona fides among progressives or liberals or whatever you want to call that. Uh, it's been an interesting turn of the tide in this in this contest uh, because prior to this, we were having a pretty good debate about different styles of governance. Sanders, we've talked about, is a revolutionary. Uh, Clinton is an institutionalist. Uh, today, right off the bat, though, they went right at this divide uh, between uh, – Who's a progressive and who's not? This progressivism territorial pissing contest. Who got the best of it tonight? Sanders is the more liberal person, and I don't feel like we must use the word progressive. Right. Let's just stick with it. It's just because yeah. we're like I mean, afraid it's, it's, of the word liberal. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, I'm not personally afraid of it. But you I'm know. not. So, so Hillary's that. idea is, you know, I'm progressive, but I get things done, which is to say, my pragmatism is not compromising values it's it's effective it's enabling things that are getting and and she's also attacked sanders for not being as progressive as people might think and she talked about this shady vote he cast against wall street regulation in the year 2000 yeah, she dug that up out of somewhere. I had not heard about that, that myself. Was some, that was some great offo research there. It was, uh, I believe she got it from a Huffington Post story by Zach Carter. Of course. The title of which was Gotta love Zach. Uh, Bernie Sanders has one pro Wall Street vote. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it turns out that it wasn't, you know, the, clear, the clearest case of Wall Street cronyism because, yes, there was this piece of legislation that was favorable 
to the unregulated trading of swaps and derivatives. However, it wound up in part of a broader bill that funded government operations, and those can be difficult. To so, unwind stuff from. So anyway, yeah, it's kind of important. Sanders didn't really respond to it, and I th- I thought that was right. Like it's kind of a weak attack. It, it's such a reach. Um, of course, Clinton's come under attack by Sanders on numerous occasions for her perceived ties to Wall Street. Uh, and tonight we got into that a little bit. She even said that she would quote look into releasing transcripts of these speeches that uh, that people have brought up again and again uh, this past yeah. week. I can't imagine that the transcripts of these speeches. Look, this isn't the Mitt Romney tax returns of 2012. Like these speeches are going to be like, here's how I feel about government. I mean, they're not going to be anything. Ah, but what if there is a Mitt Romney 47 percent thing going on? In Do there? you really think there is a Mitt? Yeah, I, just, like I don't think Hillary Clinton is that careless. There's just no way. She's I a mean, hello <laughs> Goldman Sachs. I love money. Wait, wait, wait. <laughs> you don't think she's that careless? Need I remind you? She for some reason didn't take a state. Dot gov email. Yeah, account. I mean that was, but that that wasn't carelessness. That was meticulous controlness. Oh, interesting. Interesting. That's a little bit of distinction. I just feel like the control she would have over her Goldman Sachs speeches would be high. I, I mean, you know, we'll see. I I thought her kind of pivot on the establishment barb that Bernie tried to throw was, well, it's not very establishment for me to be a woman running for president. Was a bit. Interesting, right? She called it an artful insinuation that needed to stop her. Her what? What he kept saying about being establishment. He's, she called it a smear. Yeah, a smear campaign. I thought she uh, she was very aggressive with her grievance about the Sanders campaign. I, just, I, I mean, I understand that it benefits her to be aggressive about that, but let's all just call a spade a spade. I mean, this is the establishment versus the non. Here. Of course, yeah. I mean, what? What what is the benefit of her really calling this a smear campaign? I, I mean, it's perplexing that she insists on fighting over that. There's so many things she could talk about, right? And one of the things one of the things that's interesting is that is that she has a compelling case for what she's trying to do here. Uh, she wants to stand in defense of the pro- progress that was made over the Obama administration. She's going to be the bulwark against Republican attempt to r- roll back accomplishments that were done under the administration that she participated in. Uh, and Sanders, of course, promises, well, we'll expand on this uh, and uh, create a revolution. They did sort of fall out today over an insinuation she keeps making about him, which is that he would dismantle health care, the health care reform, the Affordable Care Act, uh, in pursuit of a larger, more universal health care. Well, I feel like that goes to a larger insinuation that she makes that he has this like magic wand where he'll solve everyone's problems and fund college and all these other things. I mean, I think that was more of an attack on his broad, you know, reaching plans that are so appealing to millennials, which is why the vote is, you know, so strong for him. I, I just felt like that's I understand that it's attack, you know, on health care, but I think it more reaches to his more broader goals. You know, it's his response illustrated their differing styles of governance. He said, I, yeah. was, I was on the committee that wrote that bill. Uh, no, you weren't. I mean, you were on one of five committees that wrote it. Right. You wanted a public option and didn't get it. And it's not clear how the push for a public option in 2009 m- made the rest of the, liber- the, the legislation more liberal or less or more, or more, or more, or less liberal. Yeah, like it's not clear what you accomplished. Though there is the uh, community health centers provision he's credited for, but it shows you would his strategy of going for the best possible thing really be good? Because he didn't get it in the healthcare reform debate. But here's an uh, here's an interesting thing that we, I heard during the debate tonight. Uh, there was a conversation uh, late in the debate about uh, veterans' health care, the VA system. That was very interesting. And Bernie Sanders said this about his process, uh, because he wanted to take credit for participating in the legislative process by which a comprehensive VA reform bill was funded. He said, I put forward a bill that was a comprehensive Veterans Administration reform bill. I tried to get votes for it. I got every Democrat on board. I only got two Republicans. That took me to 56 votes, so it couldn't go forward. So what did he do next? He worked with John McCain. He said he worked with Jeff Miller. They created a new bill. He said specifically, it wasn't my bill. It wasn't 
everything I wanted, but we passed it, and it is, comparative to other bills, the most comprehensive VA reform bill that's been passed, in his opinion. Is this not a complete ringing endorsement of the way Hillary Clinton would govern? It is, isn't it? Yeah. Actually, right. that was, that's, that's a very good point. That that very much is. The meticulous wheeler dealing of uh, of the legislative interplay between Republicans and Democrats and trading votes and trading favors and sometimes watering down your exactly revolutionary you idea wanted. to yeah. get something passed. Uh, that's not what he's selling on the campaign trail. He's selling we'll bring grassroots army to D.C. and we'll pressure we'll the change, Republicans yeah. relentlessly for change. But it sounds to me like actually he has a pretty good grasp of what the Clinton way done. of doing things. And you have to wonder how it's why why campaign for wholesale change? You know, we did that. There was the Obama campaign promising such, and I don't think anyone thinks that that has happened. No, I under I, the Obama administration. Well, not that you know, not the ideals that were originally set forth. Uh, what, Lauren? What did you think of the foreign policy part? I mean, I saw this on Twitter a bunch of times, and I kind of agree that I think Sanders is not the best critique for Clinton's foreign policy. I mean, I think that a GOP candidate would have a much more of a field day with Clinton when it comes to foreign policy. It seemed to me that he repeatedly described his own vote against the Iraq war. Yeah, as I mean, his foreign policy. That was his crutch. I mean, that's the thing. And I just, I do think that when push came to shove, it would be a bit of a harder, you know, he's a little bit, you know, yes, they were very adversarial tonight, but it could get a lot worse for her or for him, and you know, against a Republican. So I thought the foreign policy discussion was a bit weak, to be honest. People on Twitter were so disdainful of him continuously mentioning his Iraq war vote, which I, think, I didn't fully understand. I think what they're looking for is the emergence of something that we would call a Bernie Sanders doctrine on which foreign policy. Which we don't policy, have. Which, yeah, we don't have. And people are like, why, it don't doesn't you, really exist. why don't you talk about what the State Department did in Libya, the killing of Muammar Gaddafi that left this power vacuum that was not good? Yeah, this I don't. is a Republican criticism that they struggle to make. Bernie Sanders can't make it. It's just it seems like a real debate. I think a lot of liberals would make that criticism too, but I'll leave that for for them. Yeah, to I think speak it's a them. longer discussion. Um, how uh, let's 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 end it here. No real clear winner tonight. But what do you, do you think? Do you think these uh, these guys accomplished something? I think they both hit points for each of their sides. I mean, I think they were able to inflict kind of wounds that answered the rallying cry for each of them on their own side. Wouldn't you agree, Arthur? I, yeah, they're more familiar with the differences between them, and they did a, they've gotten better at delineating those in these debates. I, I just think there were a lot of weird process questions in this debate yeah. uh, tonight. They could have cut off the last half There hour. were a lot of press questions. There were a lot of questions that only the press cares about that I thought were a bit right. redundant. I felt like, like I, I felt oftentimes that Chuck Todd was serving up questions especially that uh, were just geared toward helping his fellow pundits get a good wank on. I mean, I hate, I hate to use the cruise phrase, the Washington cartel, but I felt <laughs> a little bit like that was happening this evening. A little bit of Flint, though. It, well, Rachel Maddow was like, say Flint was bad, and they did. There was talk yeah, of the yeah. death penalty. Uh, <laughs> there Clear was some, choice here. One of them was, likes it. The other one the doesn't. Other one does know, well. That was interesting. Um, I, I, think, I, think that, I think that Clinton's position was, uh, you know, I don't know if I like it or not. I hope the Supreme Court takes this issue off my hands. Yeah, the only person I'd execute <laughs> is Timothy McVeigh, but like it's fine. Right, yeah. Timothy <laughs> that, was, McVeigh. that was kind of Clinton's position. Yeah, it's 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 a dicey prospect, but Timothy McVeigh was bad. We can all agree on that, right? Yeah, yeah, we that can agree. We agree answer. that. Yeah. Uh, and, and and Sanders just simply said, I don't think the government should be involved in the killing part of this. And pretty good. Yeah, probably a lot of people agree. I know I do. Um so there we go. A debate done and dusted as always. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having us. All right, we will be right back with a really great show. Please stick around. Hey, everybody. How's your 2016 campaign going? Trying out a new hobby? Working to stay in shape? Maybe you're saving up money for a dream vacation. Well, every campaign can benefit from some outside expertise. And when it comes to bringing knowledge right to your pocket, nothing beats texture. Texture offers unlimited access to all of your favorite magazines for less than the price of three magazines at the grocery store. You can browse hundreds of magazines at your leisure and cherry-pick the articles that interest you the most. And what's more, Texture offers you a lot of cool features that let you go deeper. 
The Texture editorial team provides a full supply of recommended stories every day, plus their carefully curated collections let you dive down deep into topics to come away with a breadth of knowledge from multiple sources that go beyond mere subscriptions. So if you're trying to get in shape, you can learn new workouts from men's health or men's fitness. If you want to change your wardrobe, you can get styling tips from GQ and Esquire. Want to do more with your money? Just download Forbes or Fortune and stay in the know. Sign up for Texture right now, and in seconds, you're getting insider access to the very best reads, plus exclusive content for Texture users. And it's super easy to use. Just click headlines on the cover page, and Texture takes you right to the articles that interest you the most. Here's the best part. Texture is offering listeners a free trial right now when you go to texture.com slash happened. You'll gain unrestricted access to the world's best magazines, from back issues to the ones on newsstands today. So stop wasting time, paper, and money. Take advantage of this offer right now and win your 2016 campaign with some serious magazine know-how. Try Texture for free right now when you go to texture.com slash happened. And we're back. Joining us in the studio is Zach Carter. Hello. And our next guest is an associate professor of law at Fordham University and, tw- and a former a 2014 candidate for the New York State House. She ran against Andrew Cuomo. Now she hopes to be the next U.S. representative from New York's 19th district. Please let's welcome Zephyr Teachout to the show. Hi, thanks so much for having me on. I'm really glad you're here. Let's start by just asking you, what's animating you to jump into this race in the 19th district? Well, I, uh, for a long time, I've been talking about and focused on this deep corruption in our political system. Um, we have a lot of corruption in Albany, but certainly the, the center of it is the, um, is the corruption in Congress. Um, you know, Congress is broken, and people really understand that. But they're not willing to give up, and I'm certainly not willing to give up. Um, so I am running. Um, in the 19th district to stand up to political insiders. Um, and you're very actively involved in uh, in financial reform activities. Uh, but most of your, I believe, academic research focuses on um, corporate monopolies in general. Can you can you give us a, a quick summary of, of some of your work? Yeah, sure. Back around Dodd-Frank, um, I was working with uh, Tiffany and 20,000 other people on uh, trying to bring to Congress the idea that we could actually break up big banks. And early on, it was kind of scoffed at. Um, but as you know now, it's um, uh, pretty wildly popular, not just among the public, but economists who rightly see that big banks have too much power. That's just one example of an area where um, companies stop being uh, members of the market, where they're competing in a thriving marketplace, and start having so much power that they shut out small businesses, they shut out competitors. And they also start really controlling the political process. This is something that, um, also as a historian, that um, Americans have actually been concerned about for a long time. Thomas Jefferson wanted an anti-monopoly clause in the Constitution um, because he was concerned about um, excessive private power in the public sphere. And, of course, uh, Teddy Roosevelt is perhaps best known for being a trust buster, But part of the New Deal, an essential part of FDR's New Deal, was building an economic system and supporting an economic system where there was room for a lot of small businesses, medium-sized businesses, and no one business got so big that it was either too big to fail or, uh, as we see in cable or um, uh, uh, phone companies, um, basically no longer responsive to the market, but just um, taking in a lot of people's money and not providing good services. Uh, Zephyr, you wrote a book about corruption in America. Perhaps it's the book on corruption in America. Regardless, it's titled Corruption in America from Benjamin Franklin's Snuffbox to Citizens United. And one of the themes you keep coming back to uh, in that book, um, when you talk about Citizens United and the the trend that's been that's been uh, in campaign finance law rulings, is that the insidious thing about the way the courts have interpreted campaign law and corruption isn't maybe just that the campaign finance world is now hell with the lid off, but that courts have very narrowly interpreted the idea of corruption to include really little more than quid pro quo bribery, like sacks of money right. being handed over, and that virtually all other forms of corrupt influence peddling have essentially been normalized by the courts. How do we start to wind this back? 
Well, well, I actually want to—you uh, uh, did a wonderful description there, but I want to take issue with one one piece of what what you said, which is that actually most courts throughout the country have understood since uh, the revolution onward that an essential job of democracy and of American democracy is fighting against corruption. And they've understood that corruption is when people in public office use that public office for private ends instead of public ends. It's just the Supreme Court. It's not courts. It really, you know, there's a few other ju- judges, but it really, it's just we have a, we have a almost, um, it's almost surreal how out of touch five members of our current Supreme Court are. Um, when I read the um, discussion in the Citizens United case and then the case itself, there's just this real air of unreality um, that they don't understand what politics actually is like. And in fact, we see that uh, this court has less political experience than any other court. The only other exception, actually, is the Buckley versus Vallejo court, which uh, Buckley versus Vallejo was a key case that started this uh, strange trend. So uh, now to answer your question, what can we do? Well, there's two really big areas where we can do um, um, important and critical things. And for those who want to despair, remember that our country has been in the grip of monopolies and corruption before. And it's, it's never easy to get out of, but it's possible as long as people speak up and stand up. Um, one thing is to really talk about solutions where we don't have to deal with this out-of-touch court. Um, public financing of elections is taking off in cities around the country um, and uh, states that have experimented. And what you see in those cities and states is in a public financing system, politicians can be responsive to the public. It's that simple. And we, we can have that on the federal level. I'm not saying that it solves all problems, but it really, really transforms politics. So speak, just to get back to um, to the electoral side of things here, um, you, you ran against Andrew Cuomo for, for governor in 2014, uh, had a very respectable showing with uh, like a third of the state, I think, voted for you. Um, what makes you think the, the, the 19th district is, uh, is, is going to be, let's say, more sympathetic than 30 percent? Well, um, I I won the 19th district quite handily. There are 11 counties. It's a big, diverse rural district, and I won 10 of those 11 counties. Um, excuse me, in in one in one of those counties, over 75 percent. Um, so I have very strong support in uh, in the 19th district. And then since the gubernatorial race, I have been working with. Um, renewable energy activists throughout the district, as well as parents and teachers, um, as well as people focused on democracy. I've actually traveled around a lot talking, uh, recruiting people to run for office, talking about renewable energy solutions. So I've, uh, over the last few years, developed an incredible network of support. Um, We had 300 volunteers on our first day, um, and we're getting more every day. Um, Of course, that's about the, uh, you know, the the momentum for now, um, but in the in a general election, I think uh, the key is this is a district that has a independent streak of mile wide and a mile deep. Um, Democrats vote for Republicans, Republicans vote for Democrats. Uh, people are really looking for someone who's not afraid to stand up against. Um, uh, political insiders. So how do you finance a, com- a campaign like that? I mean, the, the, the sort of standard Democratic Party candidate uh, for new newcomers over the last, say, 30 years has been someone who is either independently wealthy or willing to get cozy with big corporate interests. Um, and it sounds like your campaign platform is actually just not getting cozy with big corporate interests. How, how do you win support? Right. And sadly, I'm not independently wealthy. I, uh, I, so here's the key. Um, it's, a, it's an interesting district, and I don't know how much you guys want to get into the, to the uh, weeds on this, but um, because so much of the district gets its news from New York City, you actually have to turn to organizing. Because nobody, even, even the richest people can't afford to um, buy uh, New York City media for this rural district. Does that make sense? Yeah. 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 And so, actually, in a, in a strange way, it's going to cost a lot of money, and I'm going to raise a lot of money, and we can talk about where I'm going to raise it from. Um, but in a strange and really exciting way, um, it depends on local communities and word of mouth um, more than a lot of districts, because you have to have those personal contacts and personal connections. And when people talk about 
their uh, their current congressman, uh, the Republican Chris Gibson, who has uh, chosen to step down, so it's a wide open seat. They talk about him in personal terms, in terms of the the work, the very local work he's done, and not in the kind of uh, broadsides um, and characterizations that you might see elsewhere. So that that's uh, you know you have to build it off a strong grassroots foundation, and I'm in a good position to do that. Luckily, um, I'm also in a good position to build off a strong financial grassroots foundation, and I I really want somebody to find out where. Uh, what other candidates have done this? But we had over 3,000 donors in our um, first week, which I haven't – it, it may well have happened, but it's um, it's certainly a high number. It, it feels a little Bernie Sanders-esque, to be honest with you. Um, and, you know, that's that, that kind of leads me to another question, is that it seems to me that a lot of what's exciting liberals right now in the Democratic Party – are people coming from the outside and people sharing these kind of attitudes about monopolies, about banks. Obviously, Bernie Sanders is a presidential candidate at that level. You have Elizabeth Warren in Congress. We talked to Tim Canova uh, last week, who is challenging Debbie Wasserman Schultz in uh, her district. He shares a lot of the same, uh, sympathizes greatly with, with the type of things you put on your platform. You say you're recruiting candidates. Is there is is there like a sub Rosa bench building going on um, between people who who want to sort of return the Democratic Party to a more robust economic populism? Um, I, I think, I mean, I can certainly see that. Um, and I and I see that both within the party and then honestly um, among independents and Republicans as well is a real yearning for uh, talking plainly about what's happening in the economy and what's happening with power. Um, I mean, Zach, you and I a long time ago have talked about sort of the fundamentals of power and um, how out of power people uh, feel. I don't know if you remember this, Zach, but we were doing outreach um, on, on breaking up big banks among Republicans and independents in 2009, 2010. Yeah, and I, I remember some of the polling data on that. Even uh, self-identified Tea Partiers at the time, it was something like over 60 percent were saying that you know not enough was being done to help homeowners in distress. There was there was... Uh, it, it was not a, a partisan breakdown about, uh, you know, yeah, what you would expect right. from the media. And I, I care enormously about building um, building the party. Um, it's one of the things that uh, Maurice Hinchy, one of my heroes, a congressman who represented um, part of what my now district is now, there's been redistricting, uh, did, is that he would go fight like hell in Washington, um, but also be party and, and really representing the interests of every every member of um, every voter in his district, but also be, be party building and working with other candidates um, and doing true coordinated campaigns. Um, and I think that's really exciting because then you also do build, as you were ask, asking about, um, you build that, that next potential candidate. I really love recruiting candidates, women, young, uh, young people, um, and talking to them about what we can do in politics, even when it's really, um, even when it's really broken. There's one thing I would flag that I, I don't know if you guys have talked a lot about, but is a really big deal in my district, and I suspect around the country, um, is the parents and teachers um, uh, standing up against Common Core and for the kind of resources that we need for um, public education. Uh, well, yeah, my, my wife happens to be a special education teacher, and uh, yeah, we talk about she talks about that all the time. How adrift uh, the policymaking is, and how it, the it's sort of like a good intention uh, idea that there should be some kind of national standard, but it seems it seems to be the opinion of many teachers, many parents that the the product that they've come up with is a real botch. That that's exactly right, and it's an example of where. Um, Parents and teachers really have felt shut out of the process. So this well-intentioned from above uh, plan um, ended up being a lot of federal overreach, not helping kids, um, not not really supporting teachers in their profession, which is essential. I, I my first job out of college was as, as special education teacher's aide, so ah. not uh, not the level that your wife is at. But I think about that classroom work all the time, and I think there is something really. You asked about what other races to pay attention to. I would say pay attention to this issue. 
because I suspect um, it's going to be a big deal in my race, um, and it's something I've been working on um, locally for a while, but I suspect it's going to be a big deal in races around the um, country in 2016 with candidates having this kind of, uh, having a network of, of teachers and parents supporting them. And I'll tell you, I saw on my, uh, you know, around social media the day I launched, I saw um, teachers from deep red Republican areas of my district uh, passing around a note saying, imagine if every teacher gave $5 to this candidate, what we could do. There you go. Well, Zephyr Teachout, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, We hope to have you back on again real soon. Great. It's wonderful to be on. Great to talk to you. Thanks very much. Zephyr Teachout, she is an author, a law professor, and a candidate for the New York 19th District. Thanks for joining us. We will be right back. Hey, guys. We'll get back to the program in just a second. I just wanted to take a minute to welcome all of you into my safe space here. To thank all of you for tuning into the show and helping us to create an Inside the Beltway show for Beltway Outsiders and make it a reality. We love hearing from you. Your feedback has been such a tremendously good, positive influence on us every week. Now, you can help other people find out about this show that you're helping to build. If you are an iTunes user, please look for our show. Subscribe if you haven't. And use iTunes' widgets to rate our show and to leave us a comment. It will help people like you find this show. And we can keep building what we've got going together. So head on out to iTunes, subscribe, rate, and say hello to us and your fellow listeners. Thanks so much, guys. And now, here's something else that happened. And we're back. I'm Zach Carter, joined by Jessica Schulberg. Hello. Foreign Affairs reporter for the Huffington Post. And uh, special guest, Senator Chris Murphy, Democrat from Connecticut. Senator, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Uh, So, Senator, following up on your speech last week at the Council on Foreign Relations when you highlighted some of the problematic aspects of the U.S. relationship with Saudi Arabia, uh, one of the things we wanted to talk to you about is a lot of people, a lot of our listeners are familiar with the Israel lobby and the influence that it sort of exerts over politicians. Can you describe what the Gulf lobby might look like and what type of influence they have? Well, we have, you know, a long, historic and important alliance with Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Saudi Arabia and the larger GCC community, Um, and it is certainly anchored in a long-term economic reality, which is that for the lion's share of our country's modern economic history, we simply couldn't run our economy without relatively cheap, um, ever-present flowing Saudi oil. Uh, Thus, uh, we entered into a tacit agreement with the Saudis and with many of the other uh, countries in the region uh, that we would be their protector. We would uh, supply them with substantial military arms. um, And in exchange, whether this was explicit or or implicit, um, they would flow oil to keep our economy moving. Um, The reality of the current circumstance that we face in which our number one 
uh, threat as a nation is not the Saudis cutting off oil, but a terrorist group attacking us in a 9-11 style uh, attack um, should make us reconsider that alliance. It's not that you have, you know, sort of a grassroots Saudi lobby Mm -hmm. um, in the United States. Uh, You have an economic dependency um, and a military dependency that's existed over decades that's hard to break, even though the reality of the global circumstances we're living under today is fundamentally different than what it was in the 70s or 80s. But it's still true. I mean, the previous Saudi ambassador to the U.S. was a very influential person in, in, inside the Beltway. Um, have you received any pushback from, from the new guy? So I just gave the speech on Friday, uh, and so I, I, I'm sure that there are those in the embassy that um, aren't happy with it. I certainly haven't spoken to anyone uh, in person. I've voiced some of these concerns prior to my speech uh, last week. Um, no, I, there, there are personal relationships here as well. But my feeling is that um, these are a handful of long-term deep personal relationships. I mean, I wouldn't say that, you know, that the United States Congress is replete with members that have long-standing important personal relationships with individuals in Saudi Arabia or the GCC. I think those contacts, to the extent they're meaningful in and of themselves, really exist at the administration level. And yet, um, for whatever reason, even Congress, without those personal relationships, uh, has, uh, hasn't been willing to say some of the things that I've been saying publicly over the last week, even though privately mm-hmm. um, we've been saying them for a long time. So that said, have you received much pushback on the Hill from any of your colleagues from that speech? Anyone saying, hey, you know, why why are you touching this very important relationship? Exactly the opposite. Really? So So you you do envision that you have some potential allies on Capitol Hill? uh, Absolutely. So uh, anyone you can name specifically? No, I won't. uh, I won't necessarily out the the private email exchanges and conversations that I've had, but I have not had a single conversation with my colleagues in the Senate since I gave the speech on Friday um, expressing reservations to the the extent that I've had uh, a half dozen conversations about this speech since then. Um, it's is it bipartisan feedback you're it, getting? It is. Okay. Um, so then kind of going forward, uh, assuming that you are going to be able to build sort of um, a coalition of lawmakers who do want to see some of the changes that you laid out last week, what legislative mechanisms are available to you? Is it you've, you and some other members have put holds on weapons transfers in the past, um, but ultimately they do move forward at the administration's request. Uh, What's the best way forward? Is it more weapons hold? Is it other legislation sort of writing in more conditions on military aid? I mean, how, how do we actually implement this? Well, part of the difficulty right now in the Congress is that we don't authorize a State Department uh, appropriations or a State Department authorization. Now, right? It's yep. been a long time since we have actually authorized the language which guides our aid programs. Now, that's not as relevant to Saudi Arabia because the, the um, lion's share of our programming with Saudi Arabia is military. Um, but we certainly can have a conversation in the Department of Defense authorization bill about conditions. Um, And then uh, we can use our power through the Senate Foreign Relations Committee uh, to ask some much more substantial questions about these arms transfers. Um, You know, and I think it's important for us, for the group of us that do want to weigh in on this, to express those reservations up front so that the administration knows what's coming rather than to express them only after Mm -hmm. uh, an arms sale transfer request has been made to the committee. So can we uh, actually just dig down a little bit into what exactly you're talking about when you say we need to reexamine the relationship with with Saudi Arabia, these arms sales you're talking about? I know Jess has been, you know, a foreign affairs dork for a long time here, but I don't think all of our listeners are, are experts on this topic. Well, so we have r- regular requests from the Saudis to sell military equipment to them. Um, most recently, it has been in connection with funding their campaign um, inside Yemen, but there are also more normal, regular transfers of military equipment that are much more defensive in nature. Um, I would make the recommendation that to the extent there are going to be future sales that are directly connected to the proxy war that's being fought between the Saudis and the Iranians in Yemen, that we not approve those sales. Mm-hmm. Um, I just don't see any evidence right now that the Saudis are conducting that military exercise in a way that's responsible. It's just feeding the humanitarian crisis inside Yemen, nor is it actually accruing to the benefit of our campaign against extremists. I think there's probably a different bar applied to other weapons transfers that are not directly connected to the fight in Yemen. Um, I, I wouldn't sort of 
of lay out the explicit conditions today. But certainly, I would argue that this question of how much money is flowing through the Wahhabis to uh, some of these religious schools should be part of that conversation. Uh, kind of digging in more to your question or to your response on Yemen, uh, one one kind of conflict I see here is that the Obama administration does sort of tacitly uh, assist the Saudis in their war in Yemen. So to get the administration to stop arms flows, it's not just that we help with arms, we help right. with logistics, we help with targeting. And so you're sort of suggesting a complete policy reversal at the administration level. I am. So you're, you're exactly right. that this um, And this has really gone largely under the radar screen for all of the attention on the U.S. campaign uh, against uh, ISIL and whether or not we put troops or resources into that fight. Very few people have paid attention to the fact that we are actively coordinating with the Saudis um, with respect to targeting, with respect to resources. Um, we are at war. The United States is in many respects at war um, against uh, certain forces inside Yemen funded by uh, the Iranians um, while the Saudis are still presenting the uh, the forward face of that effort. Um, and yes, I am arguing that after having taken a long, hard look at that fight over the course of the last six months, I still don't see the benefit that accrues to our number one uh, agenda in the region, which is to fight extremism. And I think we're sort of still grounded in this world in which we just back our friends' play no matter the consequences to the United States. If the Saudis are in a fight, then we're going to be in a fight with them. And for a number of reasons, um, I, I think that we start to we have to start questioning um, that assumption. So Saudi Arabia isn't the only country that the United States has this sort of That's special right. uh, relationship with in the region. And in, in your speech, uh, I think you, on Friday you referred to Israel as our most important ally. Um, are there parts of that relationship that need to be reevaluated as well? Well, I think it's important to recognize, as I, as I did in the speech and again today on the floor of the Senate, that there are plenty of ways in which the U.S.-Saudi relationship is very constructive. And this detente that exists today between the Saudis and many GCC countries and Israel is absolutely a result of Saudi-led diplomacy. The Saudis have decided that they don't want to be in open warfare with the Israelis, that they don't want to use the kind of rhetoric that other countries do. And so they have largely stood down, much to the benefit of Israel's security. And so um, I, I, I'm clearly presenting a case that we should reevaluate the relationship, but we should appreciate um, the, the benefit that the Saudis have been, especially to the security of Israel. Uh, and then kind of stepping back, um, again, looking at the White House's Yemen policy, I have sort of a, a two-pronged question. Uh, one would be, have you had any discussions with the administration? And do, I imagine that they sort of see your point of view, but do you, do you think that they're taking it seriously? And then my other question is the, the White House's defense of supporting the Saudis in this war in Yemen in the past has been that we, we provide them targeting assistance, we help them minimize civilian deaths if we weren't involved they would still be fighting in Yemen, but there would be an even higher civilian casualty rate than we already see. What, it, what do you make of that? So the administration will, will tell you on the immediate issue of military support for Yemen that they are pressing the uh, Saudis on more responsibly using military force, uh, limiting uh, humanitarian um, uh, sort of crises and civilian casualties. And then similarly on this question of putting pressure on the Saudis to stop funding intolerant versions of Islam through export of Wahhabism, they will tell you that they are pressing them as well, right? Um, so the administration doesn't say that they aren't working or they, they aren't willing to work on either of the issues that I've presented. I just don't see the results yet. Mm -hmm. And so I would suggest that you have to take a harder line uh, at this point. And the defense that your involvement is simply limiting the casualties is really no defense at all. I mean, that would be an argument for the United States to get involved in virtually every conflict on every side if our uh, argument was simply that U.S. targeting can can more precisely kill the other side uh, while limiting civilian casualty. You actually have to have a, a little bit higher bar for U.S. involvement. And other than the Saudis are our friends 
and that it would be very bad for us, uh, for the Iranians to gain a bigger foothold of influence in the region, um, I don't think the case has been made. And I think you can make a clear case that the countervailing detriment done to us, even if we do forestall the growing Iranian influence in the region, um, that is uh, the growing footprint of al-Qaeda and ISIS inside Yemen, is much more damaging to U.S. interests. It's interesting. You don't hear a whole lot of... um Democrats, at least, in discussions of domestic violence, say gun violence, saying that more weapons are going to solve the problem. Um, well, Senator, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. And hello, we're back. We're back with Arthur Delaney. Hi. And joining us once again is one of our favorite guests. He is a representative from the great state of Wisconsin. Republican Representative Reed Ribble, who announced this week that this will be his last year in Congress. He is retiring. Congressman Ribble, I have to start by asking, was it something we did? Uh, no, no, wasn't. I'm going to miss you guys, honest. Well, you can still I'm, call I'm us. Gonna miss, I'm going to miss you guys. And so, they, no, it was nothing you did. It was uh, it was my grandsons and uh, and and my wife, and it was just ready to come. She's ready to have me come home. How's that? That works for us. It's a load off my mind that it wasn't something we did. Well, what were what were they saying? How did they apply this pressure? They're like, "Geez, Grandpa." <laughs> well, uh, my uh, my, I've got three grandchildren: five, uh, uh, ten, and twelve. And the twelve-year-old and I are really close, and have always been really close together. And uh, uh, after Christmas, my my son and daughter-in-law live in Nashville, Tennessee. I said to them, "Hey." Uh, if it's hard with you, I'm going to take the boys and go back to Wisconsin. You can come up in a week and pick them up after New Year. Uh, we we uh, played out in the snow and uh, uh, did all the things that grand granddads and grandsons love to do. <laughs> and uh, when uh, I was getting ready to come back to Washington D.C., they they uh, uh, took me to the airport, and my oldest grandson kind of grabbed me uh, around the neck, and uh, he was crying, and he did not want to uh, have me go back to Washington D.C. and he. He made it clear that he wanted to spend more time with me. He said, I'd never get to see you anymore. When am I going to get to see you again? Oh, man, I used to be that kid. One of those gut check moments, I think, that you have as a, as a grandparent, maybe even as a parent. Um, and then uh, uh, last Wednesday, my wife and I were home in our, our, our home in Sherwood, Wisconsin, and uh, she just looked at me and said, I want you to come home. And it was just that straightforward. I just want you to come home. Wow. There you go. So you... you- you were frolicking in the snow with your progeny, and you glimpsed a better life. Yeah, I did get a glimpse of a better life. So, will you? You were a roofing contractor before you entered politics. Yes, I was. Are you going to go back? I'm sure they don't want you up on a roof either. No, and and yeah, I sold the company, so those guys are, are doing good, and um, they're not they're not going to be particularly interested in having me come back. But uh, my phone hasn't been all that quiet since I announced. There's been a a lot of interest from uh, companies uh, both inside and outside Wisconsin uh, to uh, possibly have me come and work with them. And so we'll, we've got 11 more months here to work. Uh, I'm not leaving until the end of the year, and I've uh, made it clear to my staff both in Wisconsin and D.C. that I'm going to be here for the entire term, and uh, any future employment would have to follow that. So since you're staying in Washington, you know, a lot of members of Congress complain about the amount of time that they have to spend raising money so that they can win the next election so that they can keep their jobs. Every two years, there's an election, and every day, there's call time. Like, you call people on the phone and just literally beg for money. Um, I I did most of my fundraising uh, in a similar method that I did in my uh, roofing company where I built relationships with with my customers. Uh, I spent time with them, and I didn't do that uh, big routine where every afternoon or at two hours a day that you're on the phone trying to dial for dollars is what many of my colleagues call it. Um, I just I just never bought into that system. I felt that um, I, I could do uh, I could raise the funds needed to uh, fund my reelection if I built relationships with uh, with people back in Wisconsin and I did that in, in a way that made it simple for me to do my fundraising and so um, I know many of my colleagues, though, are frustrated with that call time element of their job. And in my first 
few months, I was very frustrated by it until I changed it. You work a lot of hours, right? Because so is is and I understand that you want more time with family. I just want to make sure we're talking about less time actually working. Yeah. Is, well, well, I, I I have kept track of my hours since I came to office. Um, and I average, when I'm in Washington, D.C., I average roughly 68 hours a week. When I'm in Wisconsin, I average 72 hours a week. Wow. So we've talked in previous podcasts about how Congress has moved a lot of legislation lately, that Congressman Ryan, having taken over the speakership, has put a lot of long-term budget questions to bed. As you look ahead at your last year in Congress, do you see opportunities to uh, to move anything else? I know that there's some... Uh, now bipartisan movement on occupational licensing? Well, yeah, sure. I mean, uh, I have to see how that legislation unfolds. Occupational licensing in states that use it to the extreme have really cut off entrepreneurial development in those states. And most occupational licensing occurs at the state level. So I have to really do the deep dive on any policy because I don't want the federal government intruding uh, in a in what would be a, an unenumerated power, where we're dictating to a state what they can or cannot do do in their state. So I'm going to be cautious with that. But occupational licensing has hurt the economy in the United States, uh, where you have to spend more years going to school to learn how to cut somebody's hair than you do uh, to be a dentist. Uh, that That's a problem. So the Iowa caucus is now in the books. And we're looking and we're seeing that maybe Donald Trump has a ceiling? It sure looks like it. And uh, I have to say, I was very proud of Iowa caucus goers on the Republican side. Seventy-five uh, percent of them rejected uh, Donald Trump, and I think that was the right choice to make. Marco Rubio certainly seemed to have come out of that with at least sort of the bigger, the biggest win in the sales. Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I, possibly. I don't. I, I think it's too early to tell, and Iowa's not a good measurement of that. And I kind of reject the whole idea that. This is an establishment guy, and this isn't. Take, you take Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz, they have essentially the same experience uh, in the U.S. Senate. Uh, you know, uh, Ted's been here a little bit less long, uh, by two years. That would just make him less experienced. But he served in the Bush administration, and he's a, he's a creature of Washington as much as Marco is. And, and so I kind of reject the whole, your establishment, your outsider uh, Donald Trump is no outsider. He's been he's been funding politicians for the bulk of his life, as he's very proud to tell you all. And um, and so, but I do think that there is that impression, and Marco has a foot in both of those camps. He has a foot in the outsider camp and a foot in the traditional camp, which makes him formidable. What do you think we should be looking out for as this now leaves Iowa? I think that. You need to be looking for the next surprise move. Marco got energy and momentum because he outperformed both the polling and expectation of the media. If, if somebody does that in New Hampshire, they will be the new poster child. I, I would expect one of those governors uh, to start moving up the, the, the ranks a bit. Donald Trump's strong in the New Hampshire polling. What if he just reasserts himself as king of Republicans. What if he loses? Um, you know, I, I, I would not say that Donald Trump is a lock in New Hampshire. They want town halls and they want people showing up at diners. Uh, they, want, they want those candidates walking around in the snow. Uh, and, and that's not Donald Trump. There's a lot of fluidity in New Hampshire. And I think that's the thing that Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama can attest to as well. Oh, of course, and I think you look at the history of it. New Hampshire has provided some surprise candidates all along the way, and it would it would certainly would not then be out of character for New Hampshire voters to do that again on uh, February ninth. Take me through it. It's your first day of retirement. You're back in Wisconsin. You wake up in the morning. What are you doing that day? Um, I'm probably looking to see uh, if I'm going to uh, head down to Nashville. I might be trying to pick some motorcycle ride I could go on with my wife uh, when the weather gets better, uh, or I might just grab my 12-gauge shotgun and go out and do some sporting clay shooting, which I enjoy a lot. God, shotguns and motorcycles. Reed Rubble is dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> Retirement sounds I, awesome. Listen, I am from northern Wisconsin. <laughs> He's up, up on a roof. This is good stuff. In January, I will not be on a roof. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do some work. I'm not going to just retire, retire. 
So I, I'm assuming that at some point I will uh, I'll, I'll find I'll find gainful employment and become useful to somebody. I have no doubt. Well, Congressman Ribble, congratulations on retirement, and thank you for joining us. I hope you we get several more chances to talk between now and then. You call any time. I enjoy these conversations a lot. We do too, man. All right. Thanks very much. We will be right back. Hey, everybody. We're back, and we're joined by Arthur Delaney. Hi. And I think making her very first appearance on this podcast, we have from HuffPost Pollster, the cool kids who do all the poll averaging around here, Janie Valencia. Hi. Thanks for having me on. Hey, it is great to have you on. So we're going to talk about what happened in Iowa and what could happen in New Hampshire. Okay, so in Iowa, mm-hmm. uh, generically speaking, we saw a result where a couple people, Rubio and Cruz, especially, I guess, overperformed and Trump underperformed. Right. So what went down? Um, so the Trump supporters didn't show up as much as they thought they w- polls projected that they would. And... Um, the evangel- evangelicals did, who make up about 30% of the Republican caucus in Iowa. So will this happen also in New Hampshire, where Trump has a much bigger lead? Like, how much of a Trump mirage do we have also in New Hampshire? Um, so Trump is about 20 points ahead of Cruz in New Hampshire, uh, which is way better than he was doing in Iowa. Um, but New Hampshire is kind of a different beast. So... There's still a lot of voters that are undecided in New Hampshire or leaning towards a candidate. About 37 percent say they're still deciding, which was a little bit what we saw in Iowa, where people hadn't made up their minds until the day of election, which is why Rubio got a little bit more of a bump than was expected, because a lot of those last minute deciders went for Rubio. So it sounds like there could be a a a change in, in what the polls project. But they are different beasts, This the, the Iowa yes. caucus and, and the the, uh, the New Hampshire primary. And I, I, I have to think that Donald Trump, in an interview today, basically essentially said he didn't know what a ground game was. I mean, essentially, for all intents and purposes, he was like, oh, I, no one told me that a ground game was important, so I didn't have one. Um, and there's so much just specific technical things you have to do in a caucus that's different from a primary mm-hmm. where you just show up and pull a lever. Caucus is about uh, trading around and, and, and working out deals and determining if you're viable and picking up the voters who are less viable. Do you think that maybe the inexperience of Trump voters played a big role uh, in, in how the caucuses went down? I mean, we can only speculate, but... Right. Um, absolutely. I mean, it's kind of a crazy process. If you've not done it before, then you might not know how it works. Uh, Jason, you've written about the Iowa caucuses. Why Why do we have caucuses in Iowa? Why don't they just vote? Uh, I mean, it's down to uh, the chains of habit feel light until you want to go and break them. Okay. Wait a minute. Wait, are you... Can we... Is it stupid? It, it, the caucus is stupid, yes. Thank you. Okay. The caucus is absolutely stupid, oh. but it's down to years of tradition, and... The cost of fighting the Iowa caucus is probably so high that no one really wants to attempt it. Uh, from the media perspective, it is a very good way to concentrate the money you've budgeted to cover an election, to go to Iowa for a period of time, to go to New Hampshire for a period of time, and then bunker down for Super Tuesday. You know, it matters what the media has laid their money out to actually spend on during an election. And, you know, their interests are in these kind of like, historical, nostalgic events that they can keep reporting on and keep building, you know, the reporters that know where all the good bars are and stuff. There's there, there's, there's an incentive to kind of keep this tradition alive. So it's really hard to break this tradition. But it is, the Iowa caucus is kind of like a game of Calvin Ball. And <laughs> I think that, I think it's, it's clear that Cruz played it a lot better. Yeah, I mean, it's good for the candidates, too. They already have the playbook on Iowa and New Hampshire. They know who they're appealing to, the demographics. There's been a ton of research. Janie, New Hampshire, also is a really weird beast, even though it's a primary, even though it's people showing up and pulling levers on voting machines or whatever they do in New Hampshire. I mean, I don't know if anyone pulls levers anymore. Might push a button. But 
everyone is allowed to sort of crossover vote in New Hampshire, right? So the Democrats vote in the Democratic primary and the Republicans vote in the Republican primary, but the independents um, can swing either way. Can swing either way. So that opens up the store for maybe strategic voting. Like they might vote on the Democrat side because they really don't want to have their candidate compete against Hillary Clinton. Oh, wow. Um, so they might choose to vote for Bernie Sanders because the Republican side is a little bit more volatile and unstable right now. And what, and how, how many independent voters would you estimate there are in New Hampshire? Like a ballpark percentage. Probably like 40% of the electorate. Okay, that's a big percent of the electorate. Mm-hmm. So if strategic voters swing the other party's primaries, that's something we'll be able to know took place after the fact? I think that's what's so interesting about New Hampshire is that the after-the-fact footprint always looks different from what you knew going in, right? Yeah. Who do you think really, really needs to prevail in New Hampshire going forward? I think... Trump, if he wants to make, sh- if he wants to be considered a serious candidate, needs to do really well. We've already seen his um, p- the perception of him crack a little bit that he was leading in the polls and he must be really actually doing well. And Iowa showed us that maybe he's not doing as well as the polls would tell us. And Bernie Sanders too. You know, we really need him to do well so that he seems like a viable candidate. And that he has a shot at this. Yeah, it's funny because this is his slam dunk state outside of Vermont. Mm-hmm. And I think Hillary Clinton just sent her whole squad from her New York office <laughs> to New Hampshire. Is their goal now to win New Hampshire or just close that gap? Probably close the gap as much as they can. Um, he's about 30 points ahead of her in the latest polls. And now Donald Trump is so upset about what happened in Iowa, by the way, that he's like, Right. Talking about suing somebody. Yeah, as our senior legal affairs correspondent, Jason. What? No, I'm not that guy. <laughs> but I will. But as a layman, I will answer your question. Can he do that? Uh, you know, a real senior legal affairs correspondent might know something I don't. But <laughs> I don't know who you would sue. I mean, <laughs> one of the things that's one of the things you have to remember about the Iowa caucus, and maybe maybe this is the one thing that you can say is good about it is that cheating isn't really that easy. There are witnesses in every single precinct to what happened there. If, if account comes out where it's like, Oh, somebody won and they see the numbers and they see the percentage and the people who were there can say, yo, that's not what went down in our precinct at all. Um, there, there, there are too many witnesses to that. I mean, there was a lot of to do afterwards. Crazy Donald Trump supporters thought that thought that Microsoft had thrown the election to Marco Rubio, and it was like there's no computing going on. There's no there's no computers. It's literally people counting pieces of paper or counting people on one side of the room or the other. There's no electronic. Well, there was the question of whether he stole votes from Ben Carson by saying. There's, there's that. Yes, yes. His operating theory is that Ted Cruz told a bunch of people that Ben Carson were dropping out. He told his team, Ben Ben Carson's dropping off. Tell you guys in the precincts to like let people know that. So maybe we pull some Carson supporters over to our side. Because obviously if Carson were to actually drop out, Cruz would benefit. But Carson overperformed himself in Iowa. Despite the fact that Cruz is inveighing against Carson and saying that Carson's leaving the race, not just going home to get pants, he did better than expected. Yeah, he totally did. Um, And that's, again, the evangelical voters showed up. um, And that's where Cruz and Carson draw most of their support from. And they showed up at higher rates than anyone expected. I think it was like 188,000, and the polls were projecting about 150,000 turnout. Wow. That's pretty But Ben Carson is going to drop out. He is going to drop out, and maybe Donald Trump shouldn't have spoken too soon because now that support probably won't come his way. It sounds like you're saying Donald Trump is giving people a a false version of events. Look, I said it before. (laughs) He doesn't know what he's doing. (laughs) All right. Janie, anything else you think we should look out for in New Hampshire? Um, Well, I mean, as it stands, there hasn't been a lot of new polls yet. So expect a surge of polls to come out this weekend. All right. Arthur, Janie, thanks for joining us today. We will have both of you back on again to help us make sense of whatever the hell is going on in our world. 
and we will be right back. So that's what happened this week. This podcast was produced, edited, and engineered by Christine Canetta. We are always watched over by our loving angel, Caitlin Boguki. I'm Jason Lincolns. This week, we were joined by Fordham Law Professor and New York Congressional Candidate Zephyr Teachout, Wisconsin Representative Reed Ribble, and Connecticut Senator Chris Murphy, as well as Huffington Post reporters Zach Carter, Arthur Delaney, Jessica Schulberg, Janie Valencia, and Lauren Weber. This podcast was sponsored by Texture, the smartphone app that brings the best magazines on the newsstands right to your pocket. So That Happened is available on iTunes at iTunes.com slash So That Happened. Check out the whole family of Huffington Post podcasts in the iTunes store. And while you're there, subscribe and tell your friends. If there's something you'd like to hear us talk about, send an email to So That Happened at HuffingtonPost.com. Thanks to all of you for listening, and we miss you already. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.